courage and strength today and give us pliable hearts to hear the message that you have given to him. God, we love you in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Good job, band. I wanted to be part of this, but they wouldn't let me have an instrument, so I sulked in the back of the kids. <coughs> um, my name's Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're starting a new series today on 2 Corinthians. Before we do that, let me give you an understanding of a philosophy of how we pick what we're preaching. There are basically two ways that people go when it comes to preaching. Uh, one is uh, what I would call topical where you take a certain topic or a subject and you search through scripture to find texts that, that support or whatever uh, the message that you want to communicate. <clears throat> and the other way is to take the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just go through. For me personally, I have found that I'm going to do a much better job preaching the truth to you if I go chap- book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And it makes for longer series. I know, Chuck, that annoys you, but it makes for longer series. But in the end, the reason I think that's important, especially here, is I want less human opinion and more biblical truth in what we're saying. And I find that if we go verse by verse, I'm less, me personally, because I love to interject my own thoughts. If I go verse by verse, I'm less apt to interject my own opinions because I might think one thing and then the next verse will say, well, no, Joe, you're wrong. So I feel like that's the best way for us as a church to go is is book by book. And at the end of every series, my prayer is that you as a congregation will have a better working knowledge of massive portions of Scripture so that when you go back to it, it's not like you've heard a sermon here or a sermon there. But, oh, yeah, we've gone through Psalm 119 for seven years. We understand what it says. (laughs) But today we're going to start, it won't be quite as long a series, but we're going to start a new series um, on 2 Corinthians. It's a letter that Paul wrote. And before we do that, I want to give you some historical background on the book. So this first few minutes is kind of understanding what 2 Corinthians was, who wrote it, what it was about, and all those things. First of all, you understand what Corinth was. Corinth was a merchant and shipping center with a lot of money and commerce. It was a very important city in the ancient world. It was a decadent city. It was a sinful city. It made Vegas look like Nokomis <laughs> or Mayaka. <clears throat> and it was a very decadent city. Anything you could imagine, if you had some sort of immoral, sinful, debauchery type of desire, you could go to Corinth and have it filled to overflowing. There are also tons of false teachers galore. Many of them were attacking Paul so that they could teach their false doctrine and get followers. Why? There would be two reasons why you would be a false teacher. A, you were a zealot for your ideology, or B, you wanted the prestige and money that a following would give you. So there were two motivations for people, and Corinth seemed to be because it had this idea of being like the Vegas of the ancient world in that respect. Because it was like that, there was a big market for people to come in with philosophies and ideologies and gather a following because the people, mostly in Corinth, there was a lot of money. So you get a lot of money if you had a following. And Christianity was the fastest growing group in that community at the time, the church that Paul planted in Corinth was exploding. It had a lot of problems, had a lot of outside influences coming in and trying to corrupt it. 
But because it was the biggest number of people congregating around this theology called Christianity, it was also a ripe place for people to come in and steal sheep. So that's what's going on in Corinth at the time. And one of the main things they're doing is attacking Paul, saying, you should not listen to Paul. He's not really an apostle. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. You remember how he used to be? He used to kill people like you. And they were defaming him and talking a bunch of smack about Paul. Now, what happens is Paul visits them previously and sees a lot of things going on. There's immorality in their worship. There's a lack of order in their worship. There was a lack of of, um, organization in the church. Their theology was starting to be mixed with pagan rituals. What the Corinthian church was doing was actually mixing Christianity with pagan religions and saying, you know, under the guise of can't we all be one type of thing? And the gospel was being corrupted. So Paul visits there. He sees all this and the visit does not go well. And he writes them a stern butt kicking in 1 Corinthians. I mean, 1 Corinthians is a quite harsh letter. And I can imagine as the Corinthian churches were sitting down listening to their local pastor or shepherd or elder read it to them. They were thinking, "Uh oh, our friend Paul is not happy with what we're doing. All kinds of things were going on in the church. Some of them involved sexual things and some of them involved financial things. Some of them involved how they were handling their money. Some of them involved their theology and their doctrine. A lot of bad things going on. So here's what happens. He he visits, he sees all this. He writes 1 Corinthians and then he goes to Macedonia because he knows that Titus had visited Corinth after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he finds Titus to get news of the effect that the stern letter was having. He said, Titus, can you tell me? I visited there. I wrote this letter. I kind of, you know, really blasted them pretty good. Have they received it? Or did they say, you know what? Forget Paul. We can't stand him. He's being too harsh. And they reject me. What happened? Come to find out. And this, I think the credit not, didn't go to Paul. It goes to the Holy Spirit. Because once you're a child of God, the enemy cannot snatch you out of his hands. And what happened was many had heard the truth from the Apostle Paul and they had repented. And they had repented and stopped their rebellion against Paul and the gospel. So things have actually gotten better in the Corinthian church before he writes 2 Corinthians. So what he does is he writes this follow-up letter called 2 Corinthians. He knows there's still many issues that they have to deal with. But this is an intensely personal letter that Paul writes. Amid battling those who are attacking his credibility. The biggest issue he's dealing with now, I mean, there are still some problems with morality in the Corinthian church, but many have repented. And now the two main issues that he's dealing with are his credibility as an apostle and the purity of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine how you would feel if people were talking smack about you? You didn't have Facebook or Twitter to go on and and just blast them in public? (laughs) Set them straight? I mean, I'm thankful for Facebook because there's been many political opinions that I used to have that I read a couple posts on Facebook and it changed my mind. (laughs) And that's so good, right? I imagine the same thing would happen with theology, right? I mean... If theology is wrong, oh, that person said I'm wrong. Oh, okay, well, then I'll change. 
Much of that attack, frankly, was a result of the very clear, definitive stands he took in 1 Corinthians, by the way. Because it affected greatly those who were trying to capitalize and take advantage of the Corinthian church at the time. He hurt their business. So now they're attacking him relentlessly. So 2 Corinthians has a much different tone than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is harsh. But now through their journey together of repentance and the gospel, their journey had borne intimacy between Paul and the Corinthian church once again. Because there had been this, this intimacy when they first planted the church. Then there was this division. Now they've come back to the truth and they're back in fellowship with Paul. They're supporting him. They're supporting his ministry. There's affection. <clears throat> There's pride in each other. Not pride as an arrogance, but pride as an I'm glad to be associated with you. And there's love. So the main themes, along with encouragement, are Paul defending his apostolic authority. I want to continue to remind you that I am an apostle and I have the authority to say these things to you, even though there are others saying that I don't. And then he also defends the purity of the gospel. He's saying there is no other way to the Father. Jesus is not a way. He is the way. And I'm taking a stand to let you know there is no other way to be connected to the Father. It sounds a lot like today. Matter of fact, there are churches in town, in Sarasota, that teach Jesus is a way and not the way. Churches that claim to be Christian churches who are struggling with the very same theological concepts that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians. So this is nothing new. So let's talk about the sermon today. I've titled it, Sin Suffering, No Esta Bien. I'm not very good at Spanish. I, I don't even, did I say it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I got the punctual, I love, I love upside down question marks. I don't know what it is about it. I just adore them and I'm going to start using them in English. I love it. I love it. So let's read our passage, shall we? The first couple of verses, Paul explains, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he explains, this is who I am. Okay, grace to you from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God, of the, uh, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God, uh, God of all comfort. He says, I'm an apostle. Then he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Hence the title today. No suffering, no good. So that we may be able, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He's such an amazing author. The thing, he just packs so much into those verses. And so for the next four hours, we're going to unpack. I'm just kidding. Next four. <laughs> Verse six. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
So let that sink in for a minute. That's the level he was talking about as far as affliction. It wasn't like, how am I going to pay my rent? My tires are flat. My electricity might get shut off. I'm not saying those aren't sufferings. They are. But this was a different level. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So let's talk about the historical part of this passage. History, what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? I want to talk about Paul's pastoral street cred. See, Paul says his suffering that he had been through was worth it because it made him a better apostle. It made him a better comforter and it made him a better shepherd. He would not have been a good church planter. He could not have written 1st and 2nd Corinthians had he not first been persecuted and suffered. Remember, Corinth was a mess when he wrote 1st Corinthians. But Paul had street cred with them because of the suffering he had gone through. Why was he suffering? Why did he suffer? Because of him serving them. The Corinthians knew that the only reason this guy's in prison, the only reason this guy possibly got a death sentence, the only reason this guy's had, he could have had a very easy life had he just continued on with what he was doing. Politically and socially, he was in the mainstream. He had good money. He had good contacts. He was a big wig. He could have continued with that. But because he decided to start a church and bring the message of hope and redemption to us, he was suffering even possibly to death. So we had street cred with them. And, and they knew that when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had earned the right. He wasn't writing from an ivory tower of arrogance. Listen, you need to be like me. He was saying, hey, this is the Apostle Paul, dirty Apostle Paul, who's the chiefest of sinners. The one who, if anyone could have grace, it's me. So he didn't write it from an ivy tower of arrogance. They had seen him in his suffering. They'd seen him belittled. They'd seen him imprisoned. They'd seen him beaten. They'd seen him slandered. And they'd seen him be willing to endure all of this so he could shepherd and minister to them. Being their pastor was not easy. It was extremely costly. He wasn't some outsider that hadn't earned the right to speak sternly. He had earned the privilege of apostolic and pastoral authority. See, here's the problem in many places with church, especially with Christians like us. We want to assert our authority Biblically and spiritually with truth, but we're not willing to go through the suffering to earn the right to do it. In our leadership, whenever we have somebody in our church who might be struggling in a certain area and somebody needs to come alongside them, encourage them. The first question we ask is, OK, who has earned the right to talk to them? If nobody's earned the right, then we got to do that first. See, Paul just didn't come out of nowhere and say, hey, Corinth, get your act together. He had earned the privilege because of suffering on their behalf. He had earned the right to be direct. He had earned the right to be harsh. He had earned the right to be honest with them because they knew all that he had done. 
all that he had suffered because of his commitment to them and his ministry to them. They knew that his love for them had cost him a ton. As a matter of fact, it cost him his livelihood. So can you see why 2 Corinthians now is so emotional? Because understand, he had suffered on their behalf. He comes back and visits. They're going far away from what he taught them. He blasts them in 1 Corinthians. Titus goes to check on it. He gives Paul a report. They're doing much better. And Paul's got to think, man, I love these people. I took a chance. I went and got in their face about some stuff I needed to. And they didn't reject me. They respected the fact that I had suffered on their behalf and they repented. I adore these Corinthians. And so that is borne out in the flavor and the emotion of how he writes 2 Corinthians. There is intense love and compassion for them. That's the historical part. Theology. What about God? What does he do? And, and why and how does he do it? I've titled the, the theological application Divine Comfort. So God comforts Paul in his affliction. Paul says that in the midst of our affliction, I've been comforted. That action by God gives Paul's team effectiveness they wouldn't have otherwise. He says, I have been comforted so that you might be comforted. His affliction had caused him, and he said this in the passage, his affliction had caused him to what? Abandon earthly hope, abandon the things that could have kept him from ministering to them and shepherding them. He said, those things, once I went through affliction, those things that I used to adore, I was able to abandon them and put my hope in the Father. This is what I call divine comfort. You ready? The combination of God's hand and earthly suffering providing power for kingdom work that would otherwise never occur. The combination of God's hand of comfort and earthly suffering that produces power for kingdom work that would otherwise never occur. Can you see logically how that works? I mean, there are many things about the kingdom that are born out of the fact that we suffer and then are comforted by God's hand. So how does this divine comfort get here? Where does it come from? This divine comfort from God's hand combined with this earthly suffering. There are several places that Paul explains in this passage where divine comfort comes from. The first one is God's word. God's word is inspired truth that speaks to the heart. It's truth that is transcendent of cultural moral relativism. It is truth that once applied has an impact no matter what people think about it. Truth does not need to be believed to be effective. Truth is effective. That is why it becomes believed. Does that make sense? Truth is effective whether you want to believe it or not. And after a while, when you see truth be effective, it proves itself. So the first place that divine comfort comes from is God's word. The second place that divine comfort comes from, I love this one, God's hand. You know what that is? That is direct intervention that comforts us emotionally, physically. I mean, it could be anything. But there's no question that part of comfort is not just what we read, it's what we feel. I mean, what good is comfort if it doesn't affect how you feel about your suffering? Oh, it'll be all right. And that's it? It'll be all right because here. And that's what God does. 
My favorite ingredient in divine comfort is right here. God's people. Human touch. People who have been saved by God. People being used by God. Human touch that speaks to our bodies. So God's word speaks to our heart. God's hand comforts our emotions. And God's people comfort our bodies. In fact, Paul expressed this concept in other places. Here's an example. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, this is why I have no choice but to believe in God's sovereignty and our salvation. Another place he talked about it was in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. In this book that we're studying, he references this. He says, for this light momentary affliction. By the way, what light momentary affliction was that? Sentenced to death. <laughs> it's pretty wild if you think about it, right? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things which are seen, but we look to the things which we don't see, the unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wow, that's divine comfort. So we got that. The historical, the pastoral street cred because of his comfort and his affliction. The theological is God's role in that comfort, the divine comfort. The combination of God's hand of comfort with earthly suffering that produces power for kingdom work that would otherwise never occur. Let's talk about the devotional application of today's passage. I want to talk about the effects of divine comfort. So remember that definition I just read. God's hand combined with the earthly suffering that produces this power for kingdom work. You know what divine comfort does? First of all, it reminds us that God is in control. In the midst of our suffering, when we are touched by God's word, by his hand and by his people, it reminds us, oh, God is there. All three. You know what else it does? I love this one. And until Grace Life or other churches really grasp this, this is so important. It forces reliance upon others. We don't want to depend on it. We want people to depend on us. Right? I mean, that's the more comfortable place to be, right? Is people asking us for things, relying on us to provide for them. We don't like it when we rely upon them, but that's how God has made the church so that we can enjoy divine comfort. The hand of his people coming alongside of you. It forces us to rely on one another, clarifies how much we need brothers and sisters. You know what else divine comfort does for you? It enables us to have one foot here, and one foot in eternity. My wife taught me that when we lost Sarah. She said, what losing a child has done is it allowed us to understand what it means to have one foot here because we got things to do, but now I can look forward more. Without suffering, you never look forward. You know what else it does? It transforms us into the child of God we want to be. You want to be a Christ follower? Ain't going to happen without suffering and divine comfort. Period. End of discussion. As hard as you may try to live a life that's not with suffering, you will never grow. The other concept I want to give you is that your suffering, yours, is my blessing. 
and vice versa. My suffering is your blessing. My question is, have you ever thought of your hardship or suffering as a gift to others? We've referenced this in our Philippian study when we first started, but it's here in 2 Corinthians as well. He says, my suffering is for you as well as my comfort. Have you ever thought about your suffering as a gift to others? I mean, naturally, human suffering, pain, and affliction without Christ, what those things do is make us turn inward. Give us a sense of entitlement. That we deserve sympathy and compassion and provision. That's the natural human response to suffering. Woe is me. But the supernatural reaction when divine comfort is applied, right? We've defined that a few times. The supernatural reaction to suffering is outward. Do you know what I'm saying? That real suffering, when it's combined with divine comfort, forces you to be an outward thinking person, compassionate on others, impacting them, not seeing what you can get. And this is part of the problem with the Christian church in America today. Too many of us want And we hop from church to church because things aren't the way we want them to be or they don't have the services we need or whatever. And what's happening is we are people that have not had real suffering mixed with divine comfort because we're still inward focused. But when you've had suffering combined with divine comfort, it makes you outward focused. Because it, why? Because it stops having you focus on the now and gives you a chance to focus on the hope that is to come. Paul said that in today's passage. Paul talked about how harsh his suffering was. So as I was thinking about what I could use as an object lesson for you to get perspective, I always hesitate to go here, but I can't think of a better example of how suffering can be a blessing to others than our family story with Sarah. And I can tell you that losing Sarah was suffering. But man, I would not trade those divine comforts for anything. Let me give you some examples. The first way God comforted me from the moment I found out to this day, right now, God's word. Each day I found, even in the harshest part of my grief, Each day I found promises in God's word that sustained me and made my faith stronger. Some of them are right here in this passage. I became obsessed with parts of God's word that would help me get through the day. And I can tell you about God's hand. He gave me, and you can't appreciate this Unless you're in my, it's different for every person, you understand? It's like a foot, a fingerprint. The ways that God used things that I never saw or would have noticed before began to heal me. I began to, because of the suffering and the hardship our family was going to, going through, my family, my wife, my son, we began to be able to see things that we never saw before with the hand of God. And those were being used to comfort me emotionally. And then my favorite one. Oh, I got to tell you, I would not have had any understanding of divine comfort without God's people. 
And I put there from the front lawn to this day. So we went through. We had our news, and it was bad. It was a rough day. We didn't know what was going on. The doctor said, you should go home. We're going to see what we can do. And, you know, because, you know, and we were there. And I remember there was still a chance, you know, maybe, maybe not. And, and we got the news. Listen, it's, it's definitely, you know, Sarah's gone. And I remember running out to the front lawn. Obviously, I'm crying. My wife's crying, and everybody in our family is crying. And, and there's a man named Lolly Gonzalez, who was one of the elders in the church there in New York. Uh, I was ready just to fall on the ground, and uh, he grabbed me, and he held me. He's a big man. He's like 350 pounds, strong as an ox. And he grabbed me. He said, I'm not letting you fall. And he held me for like 10 minutes. That was the personal touch of God's people. And as I've gone through recovery from grief and suffering, divine comfort has shown itself over and over again with people like Lolly, with passages like today's and with God's hand, like circumstances that brought us back to Sarasota and started Mobile Preacher and the Nightlife Center, an opportunity at the Garden at Church of the Palms, and then Grace Life, which would never be here had it not been for suffering and divine comfort. This sermon right here would not exist. That's why I can theologically understand James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadiness. And let steadiness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I am so grateful that we endure suffering and divine comfort. Because without it, I would probably not know 90% of you in this room. And now you're some of the most important people in my life. Like Paul in the Corinthians, it has given our family affection for so many of you, well, most of you. Some of you, you know. (laughs) I'll tell you this, it's made me a better shepherd. Made me a better pastor. I was not a good pastor before suffering and divine comfort. I had some skills, but I was a jerk. Some of you are saying, well, Joe. (laughs) But this is just my personal example. You have yours. And mine is not greater or less than yours. That would be idiotic to say, well, that's real. Who am I to say? All I know is when suffering is combined with divine comfort, it produces kingdom results. Without our suffering and divine comfort, I'm a terrible pastor and a shepherd, and you are a terrible church. Can you imagine how bad our church would be if none of us experienced suffering and divine comfort? How boring, how pointless, how pathetic, what a waste of time and money. I mean, can you imagine if there were no suffering that gave us the honor and the privilege of being comforted by God's word and by God's hand and by God's people? Can you imagine how useless our message would be? Why would anyone in the world want to hear from us? I love this guy, Oswald Chambers. He's awesome. 
He has this book called My Utmost for His Highest and a few other things. Here's what he says. I feel sorry for the Christian, and I'll insert church. I feel sorry for the Christian who doesn't have something in the circumstances of his life that he wishes were not there. Listen to me. Some of you carry the burden of things you wish were not there. It's those things combined with divine comfort that makes you effective. Count it all joy. He's not saying pretend like it doesn't hurt. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the fact that you have this has given you the privilege of experiencing God's word, God's hand, and God's people in a way that has given you effectiveness for God's church. So Paul starts off 2 Corinthians with my suffering and my comfort on your behalf has benefited you and yours has benefited me. I hope as we go through this series on 2 Corinthians, it gives you something to read. It's not that big a book, and you can read it. We can, you can go through and kind of read it along with me if you want, and, and it's going to be pretty easy to see where I break it up each week. You know, it's not necessarily chapter by, it's, you know, there's sections, there's teaching areas that we call pericopes in 2 Corinthians, teaching areas that we break apart that clearly are a concept that Paul is teaching. We're going to go through them, and remember the themes. Paul is an apostle, and the gospel is real. Dad, we're so thankful for the fact that in the midst of our suffering, you give us divine comfort. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your hand. We're so thankful for your people. And we're so thankful that in the midst of suffering, you enable us to be effective for kingdom work. Isn't it amazing, God, that the times we're most effective are the times that we often are the most wounded? Help us to learn what it means to count it a joy and privilege to go through hardship so that we can learn to love one another in ways we could never imagine.